Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Acts chapter 4. Let's share in God's good word together. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. During the Montgomery bus boycott of 1956, Dr. King spoke of the days that he felt with the mantle of responsibility that he found on his shoulders during the very beginning of the civil rights movement. He was only 25. And he cried out to God, why has God seen fit to catapult me into such a situation? And again, as only a young man, at only 25 years old, he was in the biblical company of the likes of David and Jeremiah and Josiah, all told that they were too young. And in every case, the word of God, most often through elders around them, prophets, wise people came to them and affirmed their call in the middle of their vulnerability. Now, What's important to recognize here is that Dr. King honestly faced his doubts about his worthiness as a leader, as a leader of a movement, and he found the presence of God through others, through community, especially when he wanted to walk away. He tried to think of a way out, to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. And he cried out to God using these words. Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. But Lord, I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And I can't let the people see me like this. But I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And he heard Jesus' voice say, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for the truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. the end of the world friends god is with us god is still speaking and god continues to call us call us to important work but never alone never never alone we are in our sermon series uh resilient finding strength in the chaos And certainly, at times, it can feel like chaos. And so we are in week four of this series uh, where we learn we're going to boil it down to hardship plus relationship equals resilience. And this is important, friends, because as one of my uh, mentors and a person I just love to hear preach uh, is John Ortberg. And he says it like this. He says, our world desperately needs you, you, to become a person of peace in an age of outrage. That's what our world needs. 
Don't we? Don't we need peace? Right? So, uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, let us catch up real quickly. In week one, we learned that being loved by Jesus is a gift, but following Jesus is a decision. Both of those things are true. And the goal is for us to become ready for God to use us, to transform resistance and despair into hope. Is there resistance? Sure. Is there despair? Sure. But we are called to transform that into hope. And hope will not disappoint us. Dr. King said it like this, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. And that's what we're holding on to. That was week one. Week two, uh, Pastor Brandon taught us that it is a clear identity that's important to ground us, but it also takes strong resistance to grow us, just like lifting weights. There has to be enough resistance for our muscles to grow. There has to be enough resistance in your spiritual life, emotional life, psychological life for you to be able to handle that well. But again, you don't do that alone. And the good news of Jesus is that we are loved before we do anything else. Before we can accomplish anything, we're loved. And it's in that identity that the power comes. And then last week... Uh, we learned the Acts 2 Beatitude. If, if you haven't heard the word Beatitude, it's uh, something that Jesus used on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, like blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, uh, blessed are those who weep. And so the Acts 2 Beatitude is this. Uh, say it with me. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. Right? So are things going to change around here? Yes, of course. They do every day. Are we going to be upset about it? No. We're be called to be flexible. And the thing is, friends, we want God to make us flexible and strong, not strong and brittle to where we break, not strong and immovable to where we're no good to anybody, but strong and what? Flexible, flexible. Dr. Todd Bolsinger in his book says it like this. Resilience then is not about becoming smarter or tougher. It's about becoming stronger and more flexible. It's about becoming tempered like tempered glass or tempered steel, strong and flexible. So to be able to do that, to be able to be adaptable, we have to be able to see our blind spots, which is really hard to do, actually impossible without others. So it takes self-reflection, and that self-reflection then can lead to self-awareness. That's our hope, and that can make us stronger. Right? Self-reflection does us no good unless we actually become self-aware. We don't want to be navel-gazers. We want to say, hey, what do you see? What don't I see? What is the thing that I need to be working on? How can I be a better friend or spouse or child or parent or sister or brother or worker or boss? How, how can we do this together? How do we get stronger? Well, it takes honest and courage and self-reflection, self-awareness. And that leads to feeling vulnerable, which none of us like. We, we just don't like it. Uh, it feels scary to us. And, and probably because if you've lived long enough, you've been burned. We all have. You shared something with someone, you thought it was safe to do so, you found out a week later it was not. Super painful. But here's the thing about vulnerability that Brene Brown, the researcher, says. She says, I want, she says, this is the way it feels to her. I want to experience your vulnerability, but I don't want to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is courage in you, and it feels like inadequacy in me. And so when people share with you something deep, aren't you honored by that? Doesn't that, doesn't that feel great? But then when it's your turn, you're like, oh. I don't know. It can be very hard. So, um, as we move forward in becoming stronger, more tempered, if the first critical element for resilience is vulnerability and vulnerable self-reflection, then the second is solid, safe relationships. We never try to do this on our own. Not even once. 
A professor from Duke Divinity says it like this. We often think of resilience in individual terms. This or that person is resilient. But start talking with resilient leaders and soon enough you will see that someone, someone hoped for them in a time when they couldn't get back up. You see, friends, resilience is a communal practice. The fruit of a common life rooted in hope. And that's what the church is. It's our communal life together. It's something we do together, not on our own. So this week, I'm boiling down all the, the first four weeks, basically is this. Hardship plus relationship equals resilience. Will you say that with me? Hardship plus relationship equals resilience. Hardship without relationship is just hardship. That's terrible. Relationship without anything hard happening is fantasy. It's not, it's not the way the world works, right? So it takes both of those things to make us resilient as a community. And again, Dr. Bolsinger would say this. He says, the goal is not to break down or even break through resistance, but to transform it, to transform discord into brotherhood. And this has been really difficult for us, I think, as a country, because so often I don't hear about brotherhood. I don't hear about unity. I don't hear about resiliency. What I hear is about winning. And if you win, somebody else loses. And unless you're Superman, your loss is coming. Right? You can win one day. You can't win every day. So we, we ought not be working towards winning. We ought to be working towards brotherhood to transform that. Super important that we learn this. And, and here, here's how it plays out in the world. Is that we found here, I found in my life, maybe you found this truth. You can have a hard conversation if you know that you're loved. If the person sitting across from you knows that they're loved. Now, if the first time uh, an employee or someone you're working with talks to you and you're negative and you have a hard conversation, is that going to go well? No. If the second time, if you're lucky enough to have a second time, uh, you again have a hard conversation, is that going to go well? Even less likely. If the third time they see you coming like, I'm out. Right? However, and you know this from social science, you know this from marriages. Anybody know how many positive instances it takes just to make it even with one? Five. So, fellas, if you haven't said something nice and been awesome to your wife five times, don't ask for anything. You're not getting it? Not time yet. Right? And every time you do something negative, and you do something negative again, you're 10 down. <laughs> it's a little painful, isn't it? It's true. See, so the goal is not to break down or break through, but to transform it. And we can have those hard conversations. We can. But only when we know that we are loved and the people across the table are loved and valued by the other. Because if you don't trust them and they don't trust you, then nothing's happening. Right? It's really quite simple. When trust is high, cost is low, and speed is quick. Isn't that beautiful? When trust is high, cost is low, speed is quick. The verse is true as well. When trust is gone, it comes to a halt. Speed is slow, and the cost is high. Haven't you been in those conversations? You have somebody you love and trust, it's easy, feels right, feels great, go quickly. You, you have someone that's burned you a couple times, Woo-hoo, 
not so fast. Everything costs more. Everything's slower. Everything's hard. But here's the temptation around that. Because we want to self-protect, because we want to be the smartest person in the room or we want to get our way, the temptation is, for all of us, not just for some of us, the temptation is to look good, to look respectable, like we have it all together. By the way, friends, I know you don't have it all together. No one has it all together. Now, you might have it all together for a day. Then you have children. (laughs) Or you might have it all together and then you get married. Or maybe you're fortunate enough to have all that together and your parents get older. Or maybe you have even that together and you get older. Friends, your bodies stop someday. Right? It just does. It gets hard for all of us at some point. So we, we ought not pretend that we have it all together because we don't and we won't. But we can help each other. We can help each other get to the next stage, the next level. I love this quote. I came across it this week in my study. I mean, my studying. I don't have a study. I'm studying. Um, says this, insecurity and defensiveness are what make a poor leader because it keeps them from being learners. So if you see a leader around you and they're always defensive, they're not a leader. If you see a leader and they're insecure and they always need you to be lifting them up, they're not a good leader because they can't learn. Because they've always got their guard up. They can't learn anything. Friends, that's super important we understand this. And so, as a way to get past that, and because that's true, and because we care deeply about the safety and the security and the love and the grace and the growing up of every person that walks on this campus, from day one, we have been committed that no one ever does ministry alone. Right? Never do ministry what? What's the word? Alone. Never. So, if you go to our nursery right now, will there be one nursery worker? No, there will be at least two. If you go into our children's department where Megan and her team are working with their little ones, will you go into a Sunday school room with only one volunteer? No, you'll have at least two. And, and the youth that are going, right? Do we have one? Does Courtney, who's awesome, I think she's the best youth, youth director in all the world, does she do that on her own? No, she does that with other adults, Even when we go to get somebody gas or to help them in another way, to get them groceries, when we help strangers, which we did even last week. Do I do that on my own? No. I make Brandon go with me. (laughs) Friends, we never do ministry alone. When we visit the sick in the hospital, we don't go alone. Now, this was really challenging for me as a young man. When I was coming into the ministry, we have what's known as a day with the bishop, where all the people who are going to be ordained and give our life to service through the church, we come before the bishop, and it's sort of the last testing of us after a very long process, about seven years in my case. And I I remember Bishop Blake simply saying, I, I couldn't believe my ears, he simply looked at us and he said, never do ministry alone. Not ever. He said, and if you do, and it goes south on you. It's on you. We will not back you up. And I thought, that dude's terrible. <laughs> I'm like, well, what if, what if somebody's having a heart attack? Well, what if somebody's in the hospital? What if somebody's super sad? What if somebody's suicidal? I mean, what about all these whatevers? Because I, at the time, I was at a church. One of those churches worshiped seven. On average, seven. 
The other worshiped 25. And I was thinking to myself, how am I going to do that? And so I asked Bishop Blake, I said, I said, how am I supposed to do that? He said, I said, what if I can't get anybody to go? And he says, then you don't have a church. He said, the church is the people of God on mission for God. And if you're telling me that the people that call themselves followers of Jesus don't care enough to go with you to serve one of their brothers or sisters, then you don't have a church. I'll close it. I was like, oh. And you know what? So far, and I'm thanking God for this, and I think this is a big part of it. There's not been a day here in nearly 25 years that we've ever even had a whisper of a problem about an accusation, a problem with a child, a problem with the youth, a problem with an adult, not one. Right? Because we're doing ministry how? And twos. If you come to our church and you walk into a Sunday school class and you're the only one there, leave. You're supposed to have two people there. If you go to youth group and there's only one person there, leave. That's not us. We should always have ministry in twos. And I will tell you, my colleagues who have gotten in trouble, it's not because they were doing ministry with another great Christian. They were doing it alone. They got tired. They felt like they were owed something. They got tempted. There was nobody to correct them, help them, lift them up. Right? That's where it happened. You don't, you don't see people, oh, this group of three people, we're doing great ministry, and then they were just off page all of a sudden. doesn't work like that. Friends, it is community that keeps you safe. It is community that empowers you. It is com- community that makes us resilient. Not on our own. And even Jesus models this. This is how Jesus did it. If you look in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out, how? Two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Important, big work. In twos, not alone. And in Matthew, not only did he send them in twos, Matthew, you know, was very detailed in everything. Matthew actually tells you who were pairs. So Matthew 10, it says this. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, as we just said, gave them authority over unclean spirits. We got that. To cast them out, to cure every, disease, every sickness. These are the names of the 12. First, the first pair, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother who? Andrew. Pair one. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother? John. Pair two. Philip and Bartholomew, group three. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, group four. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, group five. And Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, group six. Judas got last place because he betrayed him. (laughs) But still, group of six. And did anybody go with Judas when he betrayed Jesus? Uh Uh-uh. He was alone. He was alone. And so the next time you think you're going to do something great for God alone, don't. Just don't. Not a God. So, again, Dr. Bolsinger would say, to lead alone is reckless and arrogant. It is foolish and dangerous to both self and others. And I need an amen there. We just have to understand this. And, and, and this is a big and for me and for all leaders, it's tempting to think that the people who have more and more responsibility, people who have proven themselves over a long time, don't need as much. Uh Uh-uh. They need more. Right? The more responsibility we have, the more accountability and life-giving relationships we need. I know that some of you think I work three hours a week. And I do, and a little more. But here's the thing. I'm accountable to at least four, five people, right? Uh, I answer here at the local church to David Wright. He's our SBR chair. 
I answer to my regional superintendent, Sam Powers. I answer to my bishop, Bishop Nunn. And I answer, ultimately, after, after SPR, I answer to Kathy Wallace, my ad council chair. And most importantly, I answer to Chantel. I mean, I have at least five groups of people that I report to. I have five bosses. Everybody needs accountability. Everybody needs accountability. Even Jesus, in the great story of the transfiguration, he models community for us, both in this life and the next. You know, this is Trinity Sunday, by the way. It comes after Pentecost. Trinity Sunday is where we celebrate that God and God's fullness is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even in God's own self, God is community. God is community in God's own self. That'll blow your mind. We'll talk about that later. So the scripture says this in the Gospel of Luke. Now, about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him who? Peter and John, and he added one, and James even, going up in threes, and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Now, if you're going to have a glimpse of heaven and you're Jewish, you would expect to see Abraham, the father of faith. Or you might be able to see Moses as the greatest first prophet. Well, Actually, what Jesus sees is two. Isn't that interesting? Two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. Now, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So in this life, he's going up as as a foursome, right? Peter, James, and John. And as he looks into the heavens and interacts with both sides at once because he is God himself, he's got Moses and Elijah, community and community. And God himself is in community. So as we look at these relationships, there's at least three that I'd lift up to you. These are not necessarily biblical. There are biblical references to them. This is out of, out of business. Uh, but I think it, it works, and it works um, for us as well. So there are three important types of relationships. Um, you may know this. Matt Bloom, uh, who's a professor uh, at Notre Dame, uh, he says this. There's front stage, And that's where performance happens. That's what I'm doing right now. There's a front stage. You have a front stage. Whatever your primary work is, that's your front stage. But then there's also the backstage. And that's the place to support and nurture great front stage performances. You ought to know that either on Wednesday or Thursday, every person that gets up here to be front stage works with an entire team all day, Wednesday or Thursday, backstage to get this front stage better. Right? Anything you see, if the preaching has gotten better here, it's because of the other team members you don't see. Erica in the back, Pedro in the back, Bobby on our staff, uh, Michael on our staff, Dr. Grell on our staff, uh, Brandon, myself, Chantel, Courtney, all of that's in the team that makes front stage possible here. Everybody knows that sermon before it's ever preached, and they make it better. They make it better. So all that's true. And then there's also offstage, and that's a place where you actually step away from performance roles, and you gauge in other parts of your life. Friends, family, do you know you can have friends outside of work? It's called healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in front stage, we need teammates. We need partners. We need coworkers who share the responsibility and struggle with us. It's great to go do a really hard piece of ministry and have it got done well and everybody celebrate together. That's awesome. In the book of Acts, we find this. Peter and John, again, together. They're speaking to people, priests, captain of the temple, Sadducees come to them. They're annoyed because they're teaching people, proclaiming that in Jesus there's the resurrection of the dead. Absolutely right. They were arrested for that. And because they were arrested, they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The church is growing quickly, right? Pentecost, 
two, three thousand. This day, another five thousand. They got a church of almost ten thousand by Acts chapter four, Acts two, Acts four. And when they had made the prisoners stand together in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed, that's the scripture we read off the top, done to someone who was sick and asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth. The power of doing ministry together in community. Friends, we need trustworthy allies alongside us. We do. We need a team where we can all be our authentic selves and enjoy a common goal. We're not pretending. We're not acting like we have it all together. This really is who I am. I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. And that makes a good team. Margaret Wheatley, um, who's a consultant, she says it like this, the primary way to prepare for the unknown is to attend the quality of our relationships, to how well we know and trust one another. And friends, we, we learned this in a big way during COVID. Like, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. Nobody knows. And they don't agree. Those who say they know don't agree. So what do you do? Get your team ready. Make sure that whoever you're walking with is good to walk with. Make sure they're ready. Make sure they're healthy. Make sure they're accountable. That you can do in good times and bad times and unknown times. So that's front stage. Backstage is your supervisors, your mentors, your coaches. And they help us be better when we step on the front stage. Right? It's, it's Brandon and, and, and Dr. Grail and, and myself, we don't just stand up here and be like, I think we're going to wing it. Right? We answer to lots of people. And good front stage work depends on a lot of time backstage preparing and assessing the work that is being done. After almost every ministry event, we gather as a team and we say, what worked? What didn't work? What needs to change? Over and over and over and over again. And you'd be amazed at so many things that were really great on a Sunday. And I had no idea that even happened because about you know, three quarters of what happens here is blind to me. When I'm here, I'm not in the nursery. When I'm here, I'm not in children. And when I'm here, I'm not in youth. When I'm here, I'm not in adult Sunday school. Right? And all the beautiful things happen, and I get to know it. And then sometimes we go, oh, that wasn't great. Because that happens too. And we're like, yeah, we got to fix that. When? Like now. Right? Like, we got to fix that now. Or that's not so bad. We'll fix that next week or on Monday when we come to staff meeting. So, Mark Roberts, um, and I think we should listen to him because he has a couple of PhDs from Harvard. He's a super smart guy. And this is what he says about what he learned. He says, what I learned was that I really needed to be willing to learn. I needed to learn from the past mistakes. I needed to learn by listening to people, to learn from my partners and colleagues. I just had to keep being humble before God. Wow, humble before God. This is, this is not a religious work, friends. This is just straight Harvard Business Review work. Humble before God and being willing to learn as quickly as possible from what wasn't working so we could figure out what would work. Most of the time you don't know what's going to work until you figure out what doesn't. And the way the Bible does this is it's full of wise elders, prophets, teachers, mentors, Jethro to Moses or Barnabas to Paul and then Paul to Timothy, paying it forward and forward and forward. And then we come to our offstage relationships. And that's our family and friends. Friends, this summer, I hope you go on vacation. I hope you connect with grandma. I hope you connect with cousins. I hope you go have quality time without your cell phone. You can actually just enjoy one another. This is super important. And you know what I find most often? 
over more than 20 years of ministry, if I have a staff member who's off page all of a sudden and they're just, their work's terrible and they're hard to get along with, it has nothing to do with here. It has something to do at home. Something else altogether. Friends, if your offstage life isn't working, nothing else is working. Right? We need friends and family members who care more about who we are than what we do. I mean, think in your own life. Do you know anybody who cares more about who you are than what you do? Spend more time with them. Because that's who you are, child of God. And the more social support you can draw upon from family and friends, the more resilient you can be in stressful situations because your identity is grounded. This is our character. This is who we are. This is how we act in good times and in hard times. Well, what what do these offstage relationships look like? Yes, they can be family, but they can also be spiritual directors. Um, I've been to a number of spiritual directors. It's really great. They help you. They listen to you, and then they help you say, okay, well, what do you hear God telling you? How's God directing you? And they help come alongside that biblically and, and with their training. Also, psychological therapists, super help. So spiritual directors help with your spiritual life. Therapists help with your emotional life. Support groups of every kind, uh, AA, NA, SA, SLAA, I mean, all the A's, NA, all of them. And also Al-Anon, super important. can be really, really helpful, super helpful to people because they create a powerful sanctuary of grace, of acceptance, of nurture, of care, where you can be your authentic self. So, you're like, woo, Pastor, that's a lot. How am I going to get on top of any of this? Well, I'm going to offer you some steps, your action steps for this week. I hope you'll try at least one of them. So think about this for me. You can close your eyes if that helps, but I want you to think about who was one person who lifted you up, who hoped for you when you were hopeless? Who had hope for you when you were hopeless? Who hoped more when you hoped less? Who is that person? And if they're still alive, say thank you. Write them a thank you note. Give them a call. Send them a text. Just say thank you. You know, the, the other day when I was really hurting about this and you said that, that was super helpful. Thank you. They'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. Something else that I think, um, my, my, I'll say this for myself. Um, I'm really good at this, this next part, uh, when I'm in a bind. I'm not always as great about it when things are smooth. And that is, you, we all need to schedule backstage conversations. Right? With a mentor, with a spiritual director, with a coach. This is, this is important because it just keeps you grounded. I, I consider this uh, emotional and spiritual oil change. You don't have to. You're going to be a wreck if you don't someday. Right? Just change your oil. It's just a smart thing to do. It doesn't mean you've got a problem. It means you're smart about taking care of your well-being. Or, I know some of you are like, I'm not doing that. Okay. Okay. You could call a family member and let them know how much you appreciate their love and support in your life. Wouldn't that be beautiful? To just get a text or a phone call from somebody out of the blue just says, you know what? Man, I just love you so much. I appreciate you so much just because of who you are in my life. You, you've been there for me. It's just, it's just great. I just wanted to remind you of that. It's a beautiful thing. We know Dr. King's name because he had a community of support. He had relationships. Yes, he had the love of God, but he also had the love of friends. Arm in arm together with Ralph Abernathy, carried hope in Montgomery when Martin had none. And when speeches had to be written, and Martin was out of words, 
It was attorney Stanley David Levison who stepped up and stepped in to share the vision, raise the money, organize events. And we may not have heard of Dr. King at all had it not been for Howard Thurman mentoring Martin when he was just a young man. So, make no mistake, when Martin Luther King Jr. was front stage with the dream, Abernathy and Thurman and Levison, they were backstage with a plan. And when Martin was low, he had high-profile friends that encouraged him like Jackie Robinson, James Baldwin, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Sammy Davis Jr., and the incomparable Aretha Franklin. Now, that's respect. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. See what I did there? Yeah. Google it. It'll be funny later. All right. Yeah, community friends. It's the power in community. We thank God for you. I thank God for you. I hope you thank God for the person next to you. Will you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.